Chapter Eleven of Zanoni by Edward Bulwer Lytton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. Shakespeare. Venerable Brotherhood, so sacred and so little known from whose secret and precious archives the materials for this history have been drawn ye who have retained from century to century all that time has spared of the august and venerable science thanks to you if now for the first time some record of the thoughts and actions of no false and self-styled luminary of your order be given however imperfectly to the world many spurious pretenders have been so called by the learned ignorance which still baffled and perplexed is driven to confess that it knows nothing of your origin your ceremonies or doctrines nor even if you still have local habitation on the earth thanks to you if i the only one of my country in this age admitted with profane footstep into your mysterious academy which have been by you empowered and instructed to adapt to the comprehension of the uninitiated some few of the starry truths which shone on the great shemaniah of the chaldean lore and gleamed dimly through the darkened knowledge of latter disciples laboring like celius iamblichus to revive the embers of the fire which burned in the hammerin of the east though not to us of an aged and hoary world is vouchsafed the name which so say the earliest oracles of the earth rushes into the infinite worlds yet it is ours to trace the reviving truths through each new discovery of the philosopher and chemist the laws of attraction of electricity and of the yet more mysterious agency of that great principle of life which if drawn from the universe would leave the universe a grave where but the code in which the theurgy of old sought the guides that led it to a legislation and science of its own to rebuild on worlds the fragments of this history it seems to me as if in a solemn trance i was led through the ruins of a city whose only remains were tombs from the sarcophagus and the urn i wake the genius of the extinguished torch and so closely does its shape resemble eros that at moments i scarcely know which of ye dictate to me o love o death and it stirred in the virgin's heart this new unfathomable and divine emotion was it only the ordinary affection of the pulse and the fancy of the eye to the beautiful to the ear of the eloquent or did it not justify the notion she herself received of it that it was born not of the senses that it was less of earthly and human love than the effect of some wondrous but not unholy charm i said that from that day in which no longer with awe and trembling she surrendered herself to the influence of zanoni she had sought to put her thoughts into words let the thoughts attest their own nature the self-confessional is it the daylight that shines on me or the memory of thy presence wherever i look the world seems full of thee and in every ray that trembles on the water that smiles upon the leaves i behold but a likeness to thine eyes what is this change that alters not only myself but the face of the whole universe how instantaneously leapt into the life of power which thou hadst swayest my heart in its ebb and flow thousands were around me and i saw but three that was the night in which i first entered upon the world which crowds life into a drama and has no language but music how strangely and how suddenly with three became that world ever more connected 
what the illusion of the stage was to others thy presence was to me my life too seemed to center into those short hours and from thy lips i heard a music mute to all ears but mine i sit in the room where my father dwelt here on that happy night forgetting why they were so happy i shrunk into the shadow and sought to guess what thou wert to me and my mother's low voice woke me and i crept to my father's side close close from fear of my own thoughts ah sweet and sad was the morrow to that night when thy lips warmed me of the future an orphan now what is there that lives for me to think of to dream upon to revere but thou how tenderly thou hast rebuked me for the grievous wrong that my thoughts did thee why should i have shuddered to feel thy glancing upon my thoughts like a beam on the solitary tree to which thou didst once liken me so well it was it was that like the tree i struggled for the light and the light came they tell me of love and my very life of the stage breathes the language of love into my lips no again and again i know that is not the love that i feel for thee it is not a passion it is a thought i ask not to be loved again i murmur not that thy words are stern and thy looks are cold i ask not if i have rivals i sigh not to be fair in thine eyes it is my spirit that would blend itself with thine i would give worlds though we're apart though oceans roll between us to know the hour in which thy gaze was lifted to the stars in which thy heart poured itself in prayer they tell me thou art more beautiful than the marble images that are fairer than all human forms but i have never dared to gaze steadfastly on thy face that memory might compare thee with the rest only thine eyes and thy soft calm smile haunt me when i look upon the moon all that passes into my heart is her silent light often when the air is calm i have thought that i hear the strains of my father's music often though long stilled in the grave they have waked me from the dreams of the solemn night methinks ere thou comest to me that i hear them herald thy approach methinks i hear them wail and moan when i sink back into myself on seeing thee depart thou art of that music its spirit its genius my father must have guessed at thee and thy native regions when the winds hushed to listen to his tones and the world deemed him mad i hear where i sit the far murmur of the sea murmur on ye blessed waters the waves are the pulses of the shore they beat with the gladness of the morning wind so beats my heart with the freshness and light that make up the thoughts of thee often in my childhood i have mused and asked for what i was born and my soul answered my heart and said thou wert born to worship yes i know why the real world has never seemed to me so false and cold i know why the world of the stage charmed and dazzled me i know why it was so sweet to sit apart and gaze my whole being into the distant heavens my nature is not formed for this life happy though that life seems to others it is very want to have it ever before it some image loftier than itself stranger in what realm above when the grave is past shall my soul hour after hour worship at the same source as thine in the gardens of my neighbor there is a small fountain i stood by it this morning after sunrise how it sprung up with its eager spray to the sunbeams and then i thought i should see thee again this day and so sprung my heart to the new morning thou which bringst me from the skies i have seen 
I have listened to thee again. How bold I have become! I ran on with my childlike thoughts and stories, my recollections of the past, as if I had known thee from an infant. Suddenly the idea of my presumption struck me. I stopped, and timidly sought thine eyes. Well, and when you found that nightingale refused to sing? Ah, I said, what to thee this history of the heart of a child? Viola, didst thou answer with that voice, so inexpressibly calm and earnest? Viola, the darkness of a child's heart is often but the shadow of a star. Speak on. And thy nightingale, when thy caught and caged it, refused to sing? And I placed the cage yonder amidst the vine-leaves, and took up my lute, and spoke to it on the strings, for I thought that all music was its native language, and it would understand that I sought to comfort it. Yes, saidst thou, and at last it answered thee, but not with song, in a sharp, brief cry so mournful that thy hands let fall the lute, and the tears gushed from thine eyes. So softly didst thou unbar the cage, and the nightingale flew into yonder thicket, and thou heardst the foliage rustle, and looking through the moonlight, thine eyes saw that it had found its mate. It sang to thee then from the boughs of a long, loud, joyous jubilee, and musing, thou didst feel that it was not the vine-leaves, or the moonlight, that made the bird give melody to the night, and that the secret of its music was the presence of a thing beloved. How didst thou know my thoughts in that childlike time better than I knew myself? How is the humble life of my past years, with its mean events, so mysteriously familiar to thee, bright stranger? I wonder, but I do not again dare to fear thee. Once the thought of him oppressed and weighed me down, as an infant that longs for the moon, my being was one vague desire for something never to be obtained. Now I feel rather as if to think of three suffice to remove every fetter from my spirit. I float in the still seas of light, and nothing seems too high for my wings, too glorious for my eyes. It was mine ignorance that made me fear thee. A knowledge that is not in books seems to breathe around thee as an atmosphere. How little have I read! How little have I learned! Yet when thou art by my side, it seems as if the veil were lifted from all wisdom and all nature. I startle when I look even at the words I have written. They seem not to come from myself, but the signs of another language which thou hast taught my heart, and which my hand traces rapidly at thy dictation. Sometimes I write or muse, I could fancy that I heard the light wings hovering around me, and saw dim shapes of beauty floating round and vanishing as they smiled upon me. No unquiet and fearful dream ever comes to me now in sleep. Yet sleep and waking are alike as but one dream. In sleep I wander with thee, not through the paths of earth, but through the impalpable air, an air which seems a music upward and upward, as the soul mounts on the tones of a lyre. Till I knew thee, I was a slave to the earth. Thou hast given to me the liberty of the universe. Before, it was life. It seems to me now as if I had commenced eternity. Formerly, when I was to appear upon the stage, my heart beat more loudly. I trembled to encounter the audience, whose breath gave shame or renown, and now I have no fear of them. I see them, heed them, hear them not. I know that there will be music in my voice, for it is a hymn that I pour to thee. Thou never comest to the theatre, and that no longer grieves me. 
thou art become too sacred to appear a part of the common world and i feel glad that thou art not by when crowds have a right to judge me and he spoke to me of another to another he would consign me no it is not love that i feel for thee zanoni or why did i hear thee without anger why did thy command seem to me not a thing impossible as the strings of the instrument obey the hands of the master thy lip modulates the wildest chords of my heart to thy will if it pleases thee yes let it be so thou art lord of my destinies they cannot rebel against thee i almost think i could love him whoever it be on whom thou wouldst shed the rays of that circumfuse thyself whatever thou hast touched i love whatever thou speakest of i love thy hand played with these vine leaves i wear them in my bosom thou seemest to me the source of all love too high and too bright to be loved thyself but a darting light into other objects on which the eye can glaze less dazzled no no it is not love that i feel for thee and therefore it is that i do not blush to nourish and confess it shame on me if i've loved knowing myself so worthless of a thing to thee another my memory echoes back to that word another dost thou mean that i shall see thee no more is it not sadness is it not despair that seizes me i cannot weep it is an utter sense of desolation i am plunged back into the common life and i shudder coldly at the solitude but i will obey thee if thou wilt shall i not see thee again beyond the grave oh how sweet it were to die why do i not struggle from the web which my will is thus entangled hast thou a right to dispose of me thus give me back the life i knew before i gave life itself away to thee give me back the careless dreams of my youth my liberty of heart that sung aloud as it walked the earth thou hast disenchanted me of everything that is not of thyself where was the sin at least to think of thee to see thee thy kiss still glows upon my hand is that hand mine to bestow thy kiss claimed and hallowed it to thyself stranger i will not obey thee another day one day of the fatal three is gone it is strange to me that since the sleep of the last night a deep calm has settled upon my breast i feel so assured that my very being is become a part of thee that i cannot believe that my life can be separated from thine and in this conviction i repose and smile even at thy words and my own fears thou art fond of one maxim which thou repeatest in a thousand forms that the beauty of the soul is faith that as ideal loveliness to the sculptor faith is to the heart that faith rightly understood extends over all the works of the creator whom we can know but through belief and it embraces a tranquil confidence in ourselves and a serene repose as to our future that it is the moonlight that sways the tides of the human sea that faith i comprehend now i reject all doubt all fear i know that i have inextricably linked the whole that makes the inner life to thee and thou canst not tear me from thee if thou wouldst and this change from struggle into calm came to me with sleep a sleep without a dream but when i woke it was with a mysterious sense of happiness an indistinct memory of something blessed as if thou hadst cast from afar a smile upon thy slumber 
at night i was so sad not a blossom that had not closed itself up as if never to open to the sun and the night itself in the heart as on the earth has ripened the blossoms into flowers the world is beautiful once more but beautiful in repose not a breeze stirs thy tree not a doubt my soul thou art about either through violence or artifice to suffer either dishonour or mortal loss it was a small cabinet the walls were covered with pictures one of which was worth more than the whole lineage of the owner of the palace oh yes zanoni was right the painter is a magician the gold he at least wrings from his crucible is no delusion a venetian noble might be a fribble or an assassin or a scoundrel or a dolt worthless or worse than worthless yet he might have to sat to titan and his portrait may be inestimable a few inches of painted canvas a thousand times more valuable than a man with his veins and muscles brain will heart and intellect in this cabinet sat a man of about three-and-forty dark-eyed sallow with short prominent features a massive conformation of a jaw and thick sensual but resolute lips this man was the prince di his form above the middle height and rather inclined to corpulence was clad in a loose dressing robe of rich brocade on a table before him lay an old-fashioned sword and hat a mask dice and dice-box a portfolio and an inkstand of silver curiously carved well mascari said the prince looking up towards his parasite who stood by the embrasure of the deep-set barricaded window well the cardinal sleeps with his fathers i require the comfort for the loss of so excellent a relation and where a more dulce voice than viola pisani's is your excellency serious so soon after the death of his eminence it will be the less talked of and i the less suspected hast thou ascertained the name of the insolent who baffled us that night and advised the cardinal the next day not yet sapient mascari i will inform thee it was the strange unknown the signor zanoni are you sure my prince mascari yes there is a tone in that man's voice that i never can mistake so clear so commanding when i hear it i almost fancy there is such a thing as conscience however we must rid ourselves of an impertinent mascari signor zanoni hath not yet honoured our poor house with his presence he is a distinguished stranger we must give a banquet in his honour ah and the cypress wine the cypress is a proper emblem of the grave but this anon i am superstitious there are strange stories of zanoni's power and foresight remember the death of eugeli no matter though the fiend were his ally he should not rob me of my prize no nor my revenge your excellency is infatuated the actress has bewitched you mascari said the prince with a haughty smile through these veins rolls the blood of the old visconti of those who boasted that no woman ever could escape their lust and no man their resentment the crown of my fathers has shrunk into a gewgaw and a toy their ambition and their spirit are decayed my honour is now enlisted in this pursuit viola must be mine another ambuscade said mascari inquiringly nay why not enter the house itself the situation is lonely and the door is not made of iron 
but what if on her return home she tell the tale of our violence a house forced a virgin stolen reflect though the feudal privileges are not destroyed even a visconti is now not above the law is he not mascari fool in what age of the world even if the madmen of france succeed in their chimeras will the iron of the law not bend itself like an osier twig to the strong hand of power and gold but look not so pale mascari i have foreplanned all things the day that she leaves this palace she will leave it for france with monsieur jean nico before mascari could reply the gentleman of the chamber announced the signor zanoni the prince involuntarily laid his hand upon the sword placed on the table then with a smile at his own impulse rose and met his visitor at the threshold with all the profuse and respectful courtesy of italian simulation this is an honour highly prized said the prince i have long desired to clasp the hand of one so distinguished and i give it in the spirit of which you seek it replied zanoni the neapolitan bowed over the hand he pressed but as he touched it a shiver came over him and his heart stood still zanoni bent on him his dark smiling eyes and then seated himself with a familiar air thus it is signed and sealed i mean our friendship noble prince and now i will tell you the object of my visit i find excellency that unconsciously perhaps we are rivals but we cannot accommodate our pretensions ah said the prince carelessly you then were the cavalier who robbed me of the reward of my chase all stratagems fair in love as in war reconcile our pretensions well here is the dice-box let us throw for her he who cast the lowest shall resign his claim this is a decision by which you will promise to be bound yes on my faith and for him who breaks his word so plighted what shall be the forfeit the sword lies next to the dice-box signor zanoni let him who stands not by his honour fall by the sword and you invoke that sentence of either of us fail his word be it so let signor mascari cast for us well said mascari cast the dice the prince threw himself back in his chair and world-hardened as he was could not suppress the glow of triumph and satisfaction that spread itself over his features mascari took up the three dice and rattled them noisily in the box zanoni leaning his cheek on his hand and bending over the table fixed his eyes steadfastly on the parasite mascari in vain struggled to extricate from that searching gaze he grew pale and trembled he put the box down i give the first throw to your excellency signor mascari be pleased to terminate our suspense again mascari took up the box again his hand shook so that the dice rattled within he threw the numbers were sixteen it is a high throw said zanoni calmly nevertheless signor mascari i do not despond mascari gathered up the dice shook the box and rolled the contents once more onto the table the number was the highest that had been thrown eighteen the prince darted a glance of his fire at his minion who stood with gaping mouth staring at the dice and trembling from head to foot i have won you see said zanoni may we be friends still signor said the prince obviously struggling with anger and confusion the victory is yours but pardon me you have spoken lightly of this young girl will anything tempt you to yield your claim 
Oh, I do not think so ill of my gallantry. And, resumes Zanoni, with a stern meaning in his voice, forget not the forfeit your own lips have named. The prince knit his brow, but constrained by the haughty answer that was his first impulse. Enough, he said, forcing a smile. I yield. Let me prove that I do not yield ungraciously. Will you favor me with your presence at a little feast I propose to give in honor, he added, with a sardonic mockery, of the elevation of my kinsman, the late cardinal, of pious memory, to the true seat of St. Peter? It is, indeed, a happiness to hear one command of yours I can obey. Zanoni then turned the conversation, talked lightly and gaily, and soon afterwards departed. Villain! then exclaimed the prince, grasping Mascari by the collar, you betrayed me. I assure your excellency, it was the dice that were properly arranged. He should have thrown twelve, but he is the devil, and that's the end of it. There is no time to be lost, said the prince, quitting his hold of his parasite, and quietly resetting his cravat. My blood is up. I will win this girl, if I die for it. What noise is that? It is but the sword of your illustrious ancestor that has fallen from the table. No order of spirits must be invoked unless the weather be clear and serene. Letter from Zanoni to Mengenoir My art is already dim and troubled. I have lost the tranquillity which is power. I cannot influence the decisions of those whom I would most guide to the shore. I see them wander farther and deeper into the infinite ocean where our barks sail evermore to the horizon that flies before us, amazed and awed to find that I can only warn where I would control. I have looked into my own soul. It is true that the desires of earth chain me to the present, and shut me from the solemn secrets which intellect, purified from all the dross of clay, alone can examine and survey. The stern condition in which we hold our nobler and diviner gifts darken our vision towards the future of those for whom we know the human infirmities of jealousy or hate or love. Mejnoir, all around me is mist and haze. I have gone back in our sublime existence, and from the bosom of imperishable youth that blooms only in the spirit, springs up the dark poison flower of human love. This man is not worthy of her. I know that truth. Yet his nature are the seeds of good and greatness. If the terrors and weeds of worldly vanities and fears would suffer them to grow, if she were his, and I had thus transplanted to another soil the passion that obscures my gaze and disarms my power, unseen, unheard, unrecognized, I could watch over his fate, and secretly prompt his deeds, and minister to her welfare through his own. But time rushes on. Through the shadows that encircle me I see gathering round her the darkest dangers. No choice but flight, no escape save with him or me. With me, the rapturous thought, the terrible conviction, with me. Mejnour, canst thou wonder that I would save her from myself? A moment in the life of ages, a bubble on the shoreless sea. What else to me can be human love? And in this exquisite nature of hers, more pure, more spiritual, even in its young affections, than ever heretofore the countless volumes of the heart, race after race, have given to my gaze, there is yet a deep-buried feeling that warms me of inevitable woe. Thou austere and remorseless hierophant, thou hast sought to convert to our brotherhood every spirit that seemed to thee most high and bold. 
even thou knowest by horrible experience how vain the hope to banish fear from the heart of a woman my life would be to her one marvel even if on the other hand i sought to guide her path through the realms of terror to the light think of the haunter of the threshold and shudder with me at the awful hazard i have endeavoured to fill the englishman's ambition with the true glory of his art but the restless spirit of his ancestor still seems to whisper in him and to attract to the spheres in which it lost its own wandering way there is a mystery in man's inheritance from his fathers peculiarities of the mind as diseases of the body rest dormant for generations to revive in some distant descendant baffle all treatable and elude all skill come to me from thy solitude amidst the wrecks of rome i pant for a living confidant for one who is in the old time has himself known jealousy and love i have sought commune with adonai but his presence that once inspired such heavenly content with knowledge and so serene a confidence in destiny now only troubles and perplexes me from the height from which i strive to search into the shadows of things to come i see confused spectres of menace and wrath methinks i behold a ghastly limit to the wondrous existence i have held methinks that after ages of ideal life i see my course merge into the most stormy whirlpool of the real where the stars open to me their gates there looms a scaffold thick streams of blood arises as if from shambles what is more strange to me a creature here a very type of the false ideal of common men body and mind a hideous mockery of the art that shapes the beautiful and the desires that seek the perfect ever haunts my vision amidst these perturbed and broken clouds of the fate to be by that shadowy scaffold it stands and gibbers at me with lips dropping slime and gore come o friend of the far time for me at least thy wisdom has not purged away thy human affections according to the bonds of our solemn order reduced now to thee and myself lone survivors of so many haughty and glorious aspirants thou art pledged too to warn the descendant of those whom thy counsels sought to initiate into the great secret of a former age the last of that bold visconti who was once thy pupil is the relentless persecutor of this fair child with thoughts of lust and murder he is digging his own grave thou mayst yet daunt him from his doom and i also mysteriously by the same bond am pledged to obey if he so command a less guilty descendant of a baffled but nobler student if he reject my counsel and insist upon the pledge menjure thou wilt have another neophyte beware another victim come to me this will reach thee with all speed answer it by the pressure of one hand that i can dare to clasp the wounded wolf i think knew me and came to meet me with its bloody mouth at naples the tomb of virgil beetling over the grave of posilipo is reverenced not with the feelings that should hallow the memory of the poet but the awe that wraps the memory of the magician to his charms they ascribe the hallowing of that mountain passage and the tradition yet guards his tomb by the spirits he has raised to construct the cavern this spot in the immediate vicinity of viola's home had often attracted her solitary footsteps she had loved the dim and solemn fancies that beset her as she looked into the lengthened gloom of the grotto or ascended into the tomb gazed from the rock on the dwarf figures of the busy crowd that seemed to creep like insects along the windings of the soil below 
and now at noon she bent thither her thoughtful way she threaded the narrow path she passed the gloomy vineyard that clambers up the rock and gained the lofty spot green with moss and luxuriant foliage where the dust of him who yet soothes and elevates the minds of men is believed to rest from afar rose the huge fortress of st elmo frowning darkly amidst spires and domes that glittered in the sun lulled in its azure splendor lay the cyrene sea and the gray smoke of vesuvius in the clear distance soared like a moving pillar to the lucid sky motionless on the brink of the precipice viola looked upon the lovely and living world that stretched below and the sullen vapor of vesuvius fascinated her eye yet more than the scattered gardens or the gleaming caprea smiling amidst the smiles of the sea she heard not a step that had followed her on her path and started to hear a voice at hand so sudden was the apparition of the form that stood by her side emerging from the bushes that clad the crags and so singularly did it harmonize with its uncouth ugliness with the wild nature of the scene immediately around her and the wizard traditions of the place and that the color left her cheek and a faint cry broke from her lips tush pretty trembler do not be frightened at my face said the man with a bitter smile after three months marriage there is no difference between ugliness and beauty custom is a great leveller i was coming to your house when i saw you leave it so as i have matters of importance to communicate i ventured to follow your footsteps my name is jean nicot a name already favorably known as a french artist the art of painting and the art of music are nearly connected and the stage is an altar that unites the two there was something frank and unembarrassed in the man's address that served to dispel the fear his appearance had occasioned he seated himself as he spoke on a crag beside her and looking up steadily into her face continued you are very beautiful viola pisani and i am not surprised at the number of your admirers if i presume to place myself on the list it is because i am the only one who loves thee honestly and woos thee fairly nay look not so indignant listen to me has the prince die ever spoken to thee of marriage or the beautiful impostor zanoni or the young blue-eyed englishman clarence glyndon it is marriage it is a home it is safety it is reputation that i offer thee and these last when the straight form grows crooked and the bright eyes dim what say you and he attempted to seize her hand viola shrunk from him and silently returned to depart he rose abruptly and placed himself on her path actress you must hear me do you not know what this calling of the stage is in the public eyes of prejudice that is of the common opinion of mankind it is to be a princess before the lamps and a pariah before the day no man believes in your virtue no man credits your vows you are the puppet that they consent to trick out with tinsel for their amusement not an idol for their worship are you so enamoured of this career that you scorn even to think of security and honour perhaps you are different from what you seem perhaps you laugh at the prejudice that would degrade you and would wisely turn it to advantage speak frankly to me i have no prejudice either sweet one i am sure we should agree now this prince die i have a message from him shall i deliver it never had viola felt as she felt then never had she so thoroughly seen all the perils of her forlorn condition and her fearful renown 
Nico continued. Zanoni would but amuse himself with thy vanity. Glyndon would despise himself if he offered thee his name, and thee, if thou would accept it. But Prince Di is in earnest. He is wealthy. Listen. And Nico approached his lips to her, and hissed a sentence which she did not suffer him to complete. She darted from him with one glance of unutterable disdain. And he strove to regain his hold of her arm, and lost his footing, and fell down the sides of the rock till bruised and lacerated, a pine branch saved him from the yawing abyss below. She heard his explanation of rage and pain as she bounded down the path, and without once turning to look behind, regained her home. By the porch stood Glyndon, conversing with Gionetta. She passed him abruptly, entered the house, and sinking on the floor, wept loud and passionately. Glyndon, who had followed her in surprise, sought vainly to soothe and calm her. She would not reply to his questions. She did not seem to listen to his protestations of love, till suddenly, as Nicot's terrible picture of the world's judgment of that profession, to which her younger thoughts had seemed the service of song and the beautiful, forced itself upon her. She raised her face from her hands, and looked steadily upon the Englishman, said, False one, dost thou talk to me of love? By my honour, worlds fail to tell thee how I love. Wilt thou give me thy home, thy name? Dost thou woo me as thy wife? And at what moment had Glyndon answered as his better angel would have counselled? Perhaps in that revolution of her whole mind, which the words of Nicot had effected, which made her despise herself, sicken of her lofty dreams, despair of the future, and distrust her whole ideal, perhaps, I say, in restoring her self-esteem, he would have won her confidence, and ultimately secured her love. But against the prompting of his nobler nature, rose up at that sudden question all doubts which, as Zanoni had so well implied, made the true enemies of his soul. He was thus suddenly to be entangled into a snare laid for his credulity by deceivers? Was she not instructed to seize the moment to force him into an avowal which prudence must repent? Was not the great actress rehearsing a premeditated part? He turned round as these thoughts, the children of the world, passed across him, for he literally fancied that he heard the sarcastic laugh of Mervali without, nor was he deceived. Mervali was passing by the threshold, and Gionetta had told him his friend was within. Who does not know the effect of the world's laugh? Mervali was the personation of the world. The whole world seemed to shout derision in those ringing tones. He drew back, he recoiled. Viola followed him with her earnest, impatient eyes. At last he faltered forth. Do all thy profession, beautiful Viola, exact marriage as the sole condition of love? O bitter question, O poison taunt! He repented it the moment after. He was seized with remorse of reason, of feeling, and of conscience. He saw her form shrink, as it were, at his cruel words. He saw the color come and go, and leave the writhing lips like marble, and then with a sad, gentle look of self-pity, rather than reproach, she pressed her hands tightly to her bosom, and said, He was right. Pardon me, Englishman. I see now indeed that I am the pariah and the outcast. Hear me, I retract, Viola. Viola, it is for you to forgive. But Viola waved him from her, and smiling mournfully as she passed him by, glided from the chamber. He did not dare to detain her. But who is far from love? He who fears and flies. What use to flee from one who has wings? 
the wings of love while he yet grows are short when glyndon found himself without viola's house mervali still loitering at the door seized his arm glyndon shook him off abruptly thou and thy counsels he said bitterly have made me a coward and a wretch but i will go home i will write to her i will pour out my whole soul she will forgive me yet mervali who was a man of imperturbable temper arranged his ruffles which his friend's angry gesture had a little discomposed and not till glyndon had exhausted himself a while by passionate exclamations and reproaches did the experienced angler begin to tighten the line he then drew from glyndon the explanation of what had passed and artfully sought not to irritate but soothe him mervali indeed was by no means a bad man he had stronger moral notions than are common amongst the young he sincerely reproved his friend for harboring dishonourable intentions with regard to the actress because i would not have her thy wife i never dreamed that thou shouldst degrade her to thy mistress better of the two to an imprudent match than an illicit connection but pause yet do not act on the impulse of the moment there is no time to lose i have promised to zanoni to give him my answer by to-morrow night later than that time all option ceases ah said mervali this seems suspicious explain yourself and glyndon with the earnestness of his passion told his friend what had passed between himself and zanoni suppressing only he scarce knew why the reference to his ancestor and the mysterious brotherhood this recital gave to mervali all the advantage he could desire heavens with what sound shrewd common sense he talked how evidently some charlonic coalition between the actress and perhaps who knows her candlestein protector sated with possession how equivocal the character of one the possession of the other what cunning in the question of the actress how profoundly had glyndon at the first suggestion of his sober reason seen through the snare what was he to be thus mystically cajoled into hurrying into a rash marriage because zanoni a mere stranger told him with the grave face that he must decide before the clock struck a certain hour do this at least said mervali reasonably enough wait till the time expires it is but another day baffle zanoni he tells thee that he will meet thee before midnight to-morrow and defies thee to avoid him who let us quit naples for some neighbouring place where unless he be indeed the devil he cannot possibly find us show him that you will not be led blindfold even into an act that you mediate yourself defer to write to her or to see her until after to-morrow this is all i ask then visit her and decide for yourself glyndon was staggered he could not combat the reasonings of his friend he was not convinced but he hesitated and at that moment nico passed them and he turned around and stopped as he saw glyndon well and do you still think of the pisani yes and you have seen and conversed with her she shall be madame nico before this day week i am going to the cafe in toledo and hark ye when next you meet your friend signor zanoni tell him that he has twice crossed my path jean nico though a painter is a plain honest man and always pays his debts it is good doctrine in money matters said mervali as to revenge it is not so moral and certainly not so wise but it is in your love that zanoni has crossed your path how that if your suit prosper so well ask viola pisani that question bah glyndon she is a prude only to thee 
but I have no prejudice. Once more farewell. Rouse thyself, man, said Mervali, slapping Glyndon on the shoulder. What think you of your fair one now? This man must lie. Will you write to her at once? No, if she be really playing a game, I could renounce her without a sigh. I will watch her closely, and, at all events, Zanoni shall not be the master of my fate. Let us, as you advise, leave Naples at daybreak to-morrow. End of chapter 11 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com